get into the Word and turn to Psalm 21. Psalm 21. Read through Psalm 21 in its entirety, verses 1 through 13. Let's hear now the word of the Lord together. To the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desire, and have not withheld the request of his lips. Selah. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asks life of you. You gave it to him. Length of days, forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven. When you appear, the Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of men. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight, you will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you truly have exalted your Son, who has been given all authority in heaven and earth, who rules and reigns over this world. May we exalt him with you this morning as we see all that you have done and all that you continue to do and all that you will do through Christ your King. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. Many of you know that my family has been involved in foster care and adoption for about uh, just over four years now. And um, we've had five kids come into our home. And Lord willing, next fall we'll be able to adopt our first little guy that's with us right now. Many of you know him, and you, you can't forget. I know exactly, right? It's so exciting to finally see that. Um, and as exciting as that is, it also means that we had to say goodbye to four kids that we loved as our own. Uh, I just can't even begin to describe how difficult it was to give those kids away. I remember the night before we had to send them home and just just praying and begging God that he would protect them and praying by some miracle that he would allow them to stay. As difficult as it was, we still said goodbye. And to this day, it's still been one of the most tough things, the toughest thing I've ever had to do in my entire life. I can remember through the pain of losing those kids, 
one of the only things that gave me comfort was to meditate on Christ as king. And you might sound, well, it's kind of strange, right? Why, why king? Why not deliverer, redeemer, friend? Those seem to be the, the normal metaphors. And I did think about those things, but I, I kept on coming back to the throne room scenes in the Bible. I kept on remembering the Psalms like we're going to study today where it glorifies Christ as king because I remembered that he's not just my savior. He's in charge. He rules and reigns sovereignly over this world. And he's always at work for the good of his children and for his glory. And he is the sovereign judge over everything that happens against his people. That gave me courage. And you know, I found that as I looked at Christ my King, the more I looked at Him and meditated on Him, the pain, the difficulty seemed to fade away in the glory of the King. And I found hope and I found peace because I remembered that He would watch over my kids, biologically or not, and He would care for them far better than I ever could. I don't know what you're facing this morning. I know many of you have faced pain recently. Loss of family members and friends and difficulties. Horrible things, the threat of illnesses and, and financial difficulties. And so many things in this life can drag us down. And if you're not there this morning, if you're not wrestling with something already, you will be. Because we live in a fallen and broken world. But I know that we also have a great king who is exalted on high. And Psalm 21 will help us dwell on him this morning. Will help us take the spotlight off of the difficulties of ourself in this world and shine it on our great and glorious king. And as we do that, the pain will fade away and we can rejoice in him. And so, let's do that together as we read this psalm. Let's start in the superscript. It says to the choir master, A psalm of David. Now, of course, we see, like many of the psalms before, that this was written for the people to sing. It was written by David himself. And even more importantly in this case, this was written concerning David. It's about David as the king of Israel. And that's why this is one of the psalms. There's only about ten of them throughout the Psalter that are called the royal psalms. The royal psalms. And that's because they're about the king. They're about the joys and the difficulties and the struggles and the triumphs of the king. And they're about God shaping the king to be the leader of his people. Now this psalm is unique because it actually is one of two psalms that are back-to-back. Two royal psalms that are back-to-back. Psalm 20 was a royal psalm about the king. And Psalm 20 was a a prayer for the king before he was going to go into battle. And praying that God would preserve the king and preserve the kingdom and give him victory. And then Psalm 21 answers that. After the victory where God is being thanked and praised by the king and by the people for the victory that he gave the king. And so we rejoice in that victory and thinking about what God has done through this psalm. But we also have to remember, even though we're talking about the king, we're talking about a greater king. That's why I'm so thankful Jason read Psalm 2 this morning. That psalm gives us a picture of, of God setting his king above all kings setting his king on Zion's hill, his holy hill. And he will be exalted. He will rule and reign forever. So we have to keep that great king in mind because David is just a picture of him. 
And even as we think about David and we study David, we have to remember the promises about his kingdom given to David in 2 Samuel 7. Remember the Davidic covenant, that God promised him a kingdom that would never fade. Promised that someone from his line would sit on the throne and reign and rule forever as God's king. And so we keep those things in mind and we have to remember that those pictures of the king are one and the same. Not two different people. It's all about Christ our king. And I'm sure you've already gotten that picture. As we've read through all the Psalms, every single one of them point to Jesus. We have to read this with Christian eyes. And I feel like the study in Hebrews has been so helpful here. Helping us and training us to look from the type to the fulfillment. To look from the shadow, which David is even the shadow here, to the glorious fulfillment in Jesus, the substance. And we want to use David as a lens by which we see Jesus. Yes, we look at David, but we also look through him to see the glory of Jesus Christ. And that's what we have to do as we read this psalm this morning. And you know what? This psalm helps us with that. Because the way it describes the king, it describes something that's so much greater than David ever accomplished. So much bigger than David ever could put to his name. And so we'll read and study that together. So let's, well, before we even read the, the next part of the psalm, I want to talk about the structure because that's really important. First, the, the psalm is kind of divided into two parts. You might have got a taste of that while we read it. The first seven verses are about the blessed king, the blessed king. And the next eight through 13, those verses, the second half, are about the victorious king. So the king is blessed because of the victory. God is lavishing blessings on him that include the victory, but there's so much more. And then David realizes by the sovereign hand of God that this one victory is not the end. There's still more battles to be fought. But then he gives promises that this king will win all victories. That this king will be God's victorious king forever. And as we move from the blessed to the victorious king, this psalm is also bracketed. It's, it's surrounded, it's called an inclusio, uh, by two moments of great joy. I love this. Look at verse 1 with me. Verse 1, this is the moment where the king rejoices. Verse 1 says, O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation, your deliverance, how greatly he exalts. Oh, this is the king celebrating. This is the victory lap for the king. And he's not just glorifying himself. He's glorifying the God that gave him the victory. And as he rejoices, and the psalm continues with him rejoicing, look to the end of the psalm. We have another moment of great joy, but it's not the joy of the king anymore. Look at verse 13 with me. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. And pay attention. We, not the king, we, the king's people, will sing and praise your power. How do we get from verse 1, the king rejoicing and praising God, to verse 13, where the people are joining with the king and rejoicing in their God? How do we get from that, from the king's joy being contagious to the people? Well, it's actually pretty simple. It's the people's discovery of all that God has done and all that God will do through God's king. All that God has done and all that God will do through this great king. 
He is the fulfillment of all the covenant promises. He's the one that's the source of blessing to the whole world. And so why would we not rejoice in him? Why would we, even as sovereign grace, even as Christians in this day, not join in this worship? No matter what you come here with today, no matter what difficulty you bring here with you, and the struggles in life, get a glimpse of this king who's blessed and victorious and rejoice. Rejoice with the psalmist. Rejoice with the people of Israel. Rejoice with the church. That's what we want to try to do this morning. Rejoice in our great king. So let's do that. Let's dwell on our blessed king starting in verse, we'll start in verse 2 because we already read verse 1. Remember the king is rejoicing and the blessings begin in verse 2. You have given him his heart's desire and not withheld the requests of his lips. Selah. Oh, the pause is so appropriate here because this is a beautiful picture of the king's trust in the Lord. Here, you know, turn to Psalm 20. Turn back one page. I think it's been over a year since we've studied the psalm. Um, And so we want to read Psalm 20 because remember what I said, Psalm 20 and Psalm 21 are mirror images of each other. And this verse already is a picture of that fulfillment. So Psalm 20 in verse verse 7. It says, even before the battle, look where the trust of this king is. Verse 7. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. Isn't that beautiful? While kings are counting their horses, counting their chariots, flexing their muscles, trying to measure up the armies to see if they're going to be victorious, this king and this people look to the Lord. In fact, he looks to the Lord in prayer. Look at verse 4 in Psalm 20. Up to verse 4, and it says this, May he grant your heart's desire. That's may God grant the heart's desire of the king. And fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation. And in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now turn over to Psalm 21 again. Let's read verse 2 one more time. Think about this as the echo to that. Verse 2 says, You have given him what? His heart's desire. The prayer that he had in Psalm 20 has been fulfilled. You have not withheld the request of his lips. God answered the prayer for victory. God gave this king victory. God hears the prayers of this king. Now, of course, that applies to David, doesn't it? The Psalms are full of his glorious prayers. And God has been faithful to work through those prayers and give David so many victories. But, oh, see through David here. We must remember that Jesus was also someone who had a perfect prayer life. Got away many times to pray. And we even get a, a slight glimpse into his prayers in, in John 17. This high priestly prayer, you don't have to turn there. Let me just remind you of a couple things that Jesus prayed for. He prayed that his people would be with him in heaven one day. That the Father would protect his people. That evil would not gain victory over them. That the Father would sanctify his people and save his people. I don't know about you, but I want those prayers answered. I need those prayers answered. And you know what's even better? That's not the only time Christ prayed those prayers, is it? 
Never think about what is Jesus doing right now? As we sing and preach and, and study God's Word, what is He doing right now? What has He been doing since He ascended to heaven? Well, the Bible talks about Jesus being our advocate. He preaches for us. He, he argues our case. And He's the best lawyer in the world. Because His evidence that He presents is not our evidence. It's His. Before the Father. He preaches so that we might be justified, declare righteous to the Father. And He intercedes for us, Romans says. He intercedes and prays for us. And the the Spirit joins in as well to interpret our prayers to make sure that they're being heard. Because sometimes, and I know you can relate to this, all we can really say is, help! You ever been there that all you can get out is, I don't even know what to pray for? Because of the Spirit's work, Jesus says, I know exactly what you mean by that. And every single one of Jesus' prayers are heard. Oh, it's such a blessing to be prayed for, isn't it? I know the many struggles through foster care that we've had. It's been such an encouragement to know people are praying for us. But how much more to know your king is praying for you. Robert Murray McShane says, If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. The blessing of the king being heard is also the blessing we receive as the king's people. But it doesn't stop there. Look at verse 3. Verse 3, the celebration continues. And you need to know that in this time, when the king would come back from victory, the people would come out to meet the king, and they would celebrate before the king even got to town. And then they would, they would unite with the king and rejoice, and they would come in like this victory parade. That's what the people would do. That's what they would do in Rome with the general coming back from war. That's surely what they did with David. But look who goes out and meets the king in verse 3. For you meet him with rich blessings. Who's the you? That's the Lord. God of the universe goes out to meet this king and to celebrate by giving him rich blessings. That's such an understatement. That's not just the spoils of war. These are blessings from the creator of the universe, the giver of all good gifts. And the first blessing, look what the rest of verse 3 says. You will set a crown of fine gold upon his head. Oh, and this king claims a victory. He's going to give, be given the authority to rule by God himself with the finest crown. And the picture here is that God is anointing this king through this victory that you are going to rule and reign in my place. Please see shadows of Adam and Eve here given rule and dominion over the world and, and to care for it. But now God has given that authority, that power to rule and reign to this king. And oh, this is about David for sure. He was given rule and authority to reign. He did reign well in so many ways, and God's blessings were seen through this king for the people. But we have to see past David here. Right? So clear. Christ through the cross, living for us, obeying perfectly in our place, going to the cross, paying for our sin, raising from the dead, ascending to heaven. And what does God do? God meets him and says, all authority in heaven on earth is yours. You rule and reign. 
you will sit at my right hand until all of your enemies become a footstool. This crown of fine gold is given to Jesus forever. And look at verse 4. He asked life of you. You gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. Now this is the point in the psalm where we start to see the distance between the picture of Jesus and David even further. Yes, surely this is about David. He was preserved in battle. God gave him a promise that his, his legacy, in a way, his throne, his kingdom would never perish. It would go on forever. But David's bones are on the ground somewhere. We could go dig him up if we could find him somehow. All good kings, all good rulers, all good dads die. The mortality rate of good men, of godly men, is 100%, in case you didn't know. We can't put our trust in those kings. But there is one, there is one who went to the grave and rose from the dead. Because his battle wasn't against the armies of this world. He battled sin and Satan and death. And he conquered the grave, and the Father gave him life. Resurrection life gave him length of days forever and ever, like it says in verse 4. And he was given life, and through him the life of the eternal fellowship with God is given to his people by faith. Jesus is the source of that life, the source of that blessing. And it's no doubt why verse 5 says, His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. You just lavish upon him. For you make him most blessed forever. Now the language there is really important. And it kind of reads awkward in English. But there's a reason there. The translation of the words is actually a little bit difficult. And I don't know Hebrew. But from what I've learned from the commentaries, there's another way to translate that. Instead of saying most blessed forever, it could say you make him a source of blessing. You make him a source of blessing forever. Which fits so well with the context, doesn't it? Because this king's victory is not just the king's victory. When a king wins the war, the people win the war. We know that from even our experience. If our nation wins a victory, that victory still belongs to us. And as the king rejoices in the victory, and all these blessings are bestowed on this king, those blessings trickle down to the people the king becomes blessed and becomes a source of blessing for the people. But it's not just David here that's being blessed. It's Jesus who becomes a source of blessing for the entire world. Does that sound familiar? Genesis 22, promise given to Abraham. In your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Jesus is that seed of, David, that seed of Abraham. His victory is an indication of the, the might and power that God has established in Abraham. And his victory is so much greater because he is the eternal seed, the eternal ruler. Christ has came, claimed victory over sin, Satan, and death. And he became the source of blessing for all his people. He's the fulfillment of that great promise, promise that even David was looking back towards in hope and in faith. Jesus was the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. That's why Jesus, when he came, said, Dave, or excuse me, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. It seems so blasphemous that the Pharisees picked up stones to throw it at him. 
Because Jesus was claiming that he was the promised seed of Abraham. And this psalm reminds us that that's who this king is. And look at verse 6. You make him glad or blessed with the joy of your presence. Oh, this, this verse again can be translated a little bit differently. If you wanted to go more literal here, it could say at the end, instead of the joy of your presence, it might be better translated literally before your face. You've been made glad before your face. I hope that reminds you of something. The Aaronic blessing that we read so often at the end of sermons, that we thank God for in numbers. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. David certainly experienced some of that peace, but it was Jesus who experienced the Father turning his face away, who cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who experienced hell in our place through death and resurrection, the Father's face turned back on him. And he was given peace and rule and reign forever. Don't you see what happens here? This king is fulfilling all the promises of God. The promises given to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Aaron even, and even to David. This king is a fulfillment of all of those things. Or as Paul says, all the promises of God find their yes and amen in this king, in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Why is that? Verse 7. For this king trusts in the Lord. Well, this is the place that ultimately sets Jesus apart, isn't it? David certainly was a man after God's own heart, but David sinned many of the covenant blessings away, didn't he? Made a lot of foolish decisions in his life, but Jesus alone trusted the Lord forever. And Jesus alone trusted in the place of the people, in the place of those that were in his kingdom. Jesus alone endured the cross with joy, despising the shame, and took a seat at the right hand of the throne of God. And verse 7 continues, And through the steadfast love, the covenant-keeping, unfailing, faithful love of God, of the Most High, He, the King, shall not be moved. Well, this King and this kingdom is not going anywhere. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful news? This world is full of so many fragile things. So many weak things. We, we like to pretend that we're not a part of that. We even buy insurance in case some of our fragile world starts to fall apart. But it's just a sham. Nothing in this world lasts. Joy, peace, family, friends, health, you name it. Rulers, kingdoms, they all fade away. Only one kingdom will never fade away. And one king cannot be shaken. Because he is God's king. The one that God set on Zion's hill, the one that will rule and reign forever. Oh, don't we have a blessed king? I would imagine already that even halfway through, you're beginning to rejoice. And you know, I think in a lot of ways, we could end the psalm right here. Some might even be happier, knowing what's next. We could end the psalm right here and be so encouraged. 
But God in His sovereign grace inspired David to write on because the victory that Christ claimed at the cross is a death blow. But there's still, still battles to come, isn't there? We're still in the midst of battle with sin and Satan in the flesh. But the good news is that our king didn't just sit on the throne and take a nap. Our king is ruling and reigning, and he's going to come back again and wipe out all evil from this world. And that's where our blessed king becomes the victorious king. And that's what we see in verse 8. Your right hand will find out all your enemies. Excuse me, your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. Oh, one of the first things, first things that this king will do is he will expose his enemies. That's how he begins his eternal reign. He exposes his enemies. Look at the words here. Notice it, the way his enemies are described. Your hand will find out. It almost implies that his enemies are in hiding, right? They're not easy to discover, which, which matches so much of what the New Testament says. Satan himself will appear as an angel of light. And that the church will be filled with wheat and tares and that there will be wolves in sheep clothing. But God, through his king, will find them all out. There's no place for them to hide. And notice it says his right hand. Sorry, lefties. The right hand is the symbol of power. <laughs> right? It's a symbol of authority. And especially it was the sword hand. It was the hand you go to war with. So Jesus is waging war. And he's not just sitting back playing defense. He's on offense. He's going out and finding the enemies of God's kingdom, and he's not just exposing them, he's going to take them out. And oh, we had to have Jesus do this. We needed Jesus to do this because we are masters of self-deception, aren't we? I know I am. I would imagine that some of you here are as well. Maybe you're so good at it, you don't even believe me when I say you're a master of self-deception. But we are. We've become experts at excusing, explaining away, rationalizing, spiritualizing, trivializing our own sin and rebellion. Keeping our enemies in the shadows. Keeping our enemies in the dark so that we look nice and tidy on the outside. So that we look like we're in control of our own kingdom and we don't really need the help of our king. But Jesus won't leave it there. He's going to go deep in our hearts and in this world and expose the lies and the sin in this world. He's going to expose those enemies, but then he's also going to subdue them. And that's what we see in verse 9. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth, and their offspring from among the children of man. Wow. That's even a little hard to read, isn't it? Almost seems a, a description of hell itself. The wrath and the fury of a just God put on display. But let's not forget who we're talking about here. This is the wrath of the king. This is the wrath of Jesus. I know we don't like to see Jesus that way. We like the Jesus in a manger, meek and mild, welcome kids, uh, help the people that were lowly. But we, we have to remember that the last picture of Jesus that we get in the Bible 
in Revelation is people asking the rocks to fall on them and crush them to save them from facing the wrath of the Lamb. That Jesus comes in a robe dipped in blood, treading the winepress of his wrath. And people say, oh, these are just pictures, right? Yeah, when do you use a picture? When do you use a metaphor? When the thing you're describing is far worse. The wrath of the king is like nothing we've ever seen. So we can't ignore this. We can't just dismiss it. We have to try to understand it. And fear, as Psalm 2 has called us to do. So how do we understand the king setting his enemies on fire? Swallowing them up. Killing off their offspring. Their kids for generations. Is that just a description for ancient times? Like back in the day, the kings had to wipe out all traces of their enemy so that they would never come back? Well, that might have been true in some ways, but there's more to it than this. I think this is a reference even all the way back to Genesis 3 and the curse in the garden. Do you remember? God said while he was cursing the serpent, said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. God is saying because of the fall, there's going to be two families. There's going to be this war that rages on between the seed of the woman, the woman, the people of the promise, God's people, and the the offspring of Satan. And this war will rage throughout generations until one day the seed of the woman will come and crush the head of the serpent and will wipe out his offspring from the earth. That's our king. He's wiping out every trace of sin, every trace of rebellion, every trace of evil from this world. Everything that threatens his people and his glory, Jesus is going at war with. Once again, showing that Jesus is fulfilling all the promises in Scripture, even back to Genesis 3, wiping out Satan and sin forever. And it doesn't even matter how strong they are, how great their plans are. Look at verse 11. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. Oh, please notice. God is behind his king, and all of the king's plans succeed. But that means that all of his enemy's plans are destroyed. Isn't that great news? That Jesus will be given the blessings of God and claim victory. But everything evil, every threat in this world, every difficulty, every struggle, if you are in Christ, has been paid for by him and will be destroyed by him. And doesn't this describe us? Even the evil and wickedness in my soul, my, my heart is full of mischief, devising evil plans. And I need to constantly ask the Lord to cut that evil out of me, to do heart surgery. I was reminded here of a picture uh, in the story of the great divorce. Anybody ever read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis? If you haven't, I encourage you to go buy that book. It's a great book. Some interesting things in there. But there's one picture that's always in my mind. This, this man has this lizard on his shoulder. Well, it kind of sounds weird, but this lizard is this picture of his sin and the struggles in his life. And the lizard is just whispering lies into his ear. And the, an angel of the Lord comes to this man and says, Can I kill it? 
And the man at first was like, no, no, I need this. This is really important to me. And then the man goes back and forth saying, yes, no. And he's struggling saying, oh, I would really like to be free of this, but I don't want to let it go. The sin is just killing me. And then the, the man finally realizes that his life is miserable. That this sin, this, this filth on his shoulder, right, which really is symbolic of our hearts, is destroying him. And he reluctantly tells the angel to kill it. And when the angel reaches in to grab the lizard and destroy it, the man yells, you're hurting me, you're hurting me. And then the angel says, I didn't say that it wouldn't hurt. But I did say that I can kill it. And he does. Actually, the man is writhing in pain. The lizard is destroyed. But the lizard transforms into this great stallion that the man actually rides off on. In this picture of God, even through the pain and the difficulty of this life, killing our sin and transforming us into something more glorious, more like him than we ever were. That's what God's doing here. He's waging war against sin and evil, but that war will sanctify his people. That war will rid the world of his enemies and purify his people. Look at verse 12. For you put them to flight. You run all those enemies off. You will aim at their faces with your bows. That's a pretty graphic picture. Can you even imagine getting shot in the face with an arrow? That's something that movies today wouldn't even show. That's saying a lot. But you get the picture here, right? There's no coming back from an arrow in the face. It's a death blow. And the picture here is that even though God hung up his bow in the sky after the flood and said, I will not judge the world in flood again, the king will pick up that bow one day and destroy evil forever. That judgment will come finally and fully in this king. And God will send a death blow to all of his enemies through his king. How in the world are we supposed to respond to that? Well, David helps us as well. Look at verse 13. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Brothers and sisters, that is the only response that we can give when we put our king on display. Is to bow our hearts and our knees in worship. To praise him eternally. Maybe you're here today and you think, it's not that impressive. I don't know what you were listening to, but it's... You're, you have so much pride and, and sin in your heart that you're thinking, I feel pretty comfortable on my throne. I feel pretty comfortable in control of my life. Well, I have to warn you. Don't say this with joy, but this king is going after his enemies. And there's no middle ground with this king. If you will not submit to him, then you have declared yourself his enemy. And you will be found out. Your, your rebellion, your sin, your evil will be exposed. We pray to God that it's exposed in this world world before the judgment seat. That's you today. Recognize your own sinfulness, your own sinful rebellion. Recognize what your sin deserves. And in the words of Psalm 2, submit to the king. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way of wrath. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Because today, the king can be your refuge. But one day, he will just be your judge. But if you are here today and you have 
bowed to this king. You have submitted to him. You trusted in him by faith. Doesn't this psalm make your heart rejoice? Even in the, the wrath, the depiction of the wrath, that wrath is for you. Oh, take great joy that your father answers the prayers of his son. Be encouraged that your Lord and Savior has all authority in heaven on earth over everything that happens to you. Be encouraged that your king has conquered sin and Satan and death at the cross and will deal a death blow in the future. He's coming back to rule and reign and to set everything right. Be encouraged that your king is the seed of the woman, the fulfillment of the promise in Genesis, the seed of Abraham, the great Davidic king, and the one who trusted on in your place, he trusted the Lord. Be encouraged that by faith, you're in him, justified, declared righteous, adopted into his family, and sanctified. By faith, his victory is your victory. Be encouraged and rejoice in our king. Let's pray. Father, help us rejoice. Help us to see the glory of your Son, who through the cross, his life, death, and resurrection has gained victory for his people. Oh, may he be set apart as holy and glorious in our lives. May that truth, that victory that he's accomplished, give us boldness to proclaim the work and the character of our great King from now until he returns. Pray, Lord, that you'd be glorified through us and that we would be humbled and serve our King. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.